Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, January the 10th, 2018, and this is episode 2357 of the Survival Podcast. And of course, it's a call-in day. Listener calls for 11019. And uh, to make a call for a show like this, you either pick up your phone and dial 866 65 think 866-65-THINK. We call it the Think Line. Or you can go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on contact, and you can see there there's a button for something called the speak pipe, and you can use any device with a microphone and an internet connection to send me your question through the speak pipes. Now, how do we make a call that gets on the air? Well, what we do is we get on the phone, and when the, when the, when the thing ends and the beep goes for you to leave your message, you say, Hi, Jack, this is so-and-so. My question and or my point is... Boom. And you'd use one sentence to ask your question or make your point. Then you give me all the details you want until the machine gets tired of you and clicks you off. If you do that, I am highly likely to end up with your call on the air. If you can't do that, you probably won't be clear as to what you're actually asking me, and I'll probably delete your call and go on and use somebody else's. This is me trying to help you help me help you, okay? It is not me being a big dumb jerk. Uh, I only have so much time in a day. Remember, this is a one-man show. I mean, Dorothy helps out some uh, with booking guests and entering uh, manual members, but that's about it. I do everything else here, uh, and I get hundreds of legitimate, in, in addition to the non-legitimate emails every day, uh, and i got to produce a show a day. So I, I have to be able to squ- screen things quickly. And trust me, I've been doing this 10 years. I think that makes me a professional. If you make your call that way, your call will go better and you'll get a better answer, not just you'll be likely to get on the air. So what do we got today? Here's the calls we got today. We got a call on a listener using ButcherBox. He's using it to provide a gift to his father. I thought this was really cool and I wanted to play it. It it, it makes me think of some things that, you know, even if it doesn't have anything to do with ButcherBox, that we can do for older parents. Um, how to grow a tools collection and what not to buy used is what I'm going to talk about, even though that's not what really the question was. Saving for your kids and building life establishment funds. Um, person really is not leaning toward, but did mention 529 plans. 529 plans are the devil. They are the devil. Never, ever, 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 ever do one. And if you have to explain to a financial advisor more than once why you don't want one, then you need a new financial advisor. That's how uh, strict I am on that standard. Uh, and then understanding Facebook versus Google for marketing a business, specifically Google business pages. And and, and the caller is going to make the case that Google is so much better. And I think it is for him. And it may not be for you. It all is always depends. And in this case, it has a lot to do with, well, are you a local business a brick-and-mortar type place or a service-oriented business or something like that where people do business with you like where they live and that's where you live too? Or do you deal with people all across the, the country or all across the world? Those are very different systems. And one of those things we need to start understanding is in all the marketing that's available to us online, it's not that one's better than the other. It's they have different strengths and weaknesses, and we need to tailor them to our business. A listener gives us an example uh, of life not offering you any guarantees. Uh, this is a good friend to the community, been around a long time, been on the air with us, and uh, made quite a few calls. And this is some disappointing news to hear from him, but I know he'll be okay. But I do think it gives us a chance to kind of step back a little bit and say, hey, 
am I am I prepared for what might come my way? Uh, next up, selecting cuts of meat that make good biltong, specifically a question about heart, and there'll be a very short answer there. Uh, how do you ensure your family's future as an entrepreneur? Uh, specifically, how have I done that with my family? We'll talk about that when we get there. And then we have a section I'm going to call Keeping Cogs Separated from Marketing and Sales Costs. Um, there's a, a very long, laborious question. This is a caller who got on the air because he did ask his question up front. Had he not done that, I guarantee you I would not have gotten to the end of it to hear what the actual question was. Uh, but this, this is actually a good learning experience. You hear how complicated he makes this question compared to how simple the answer is. And I'm not picking on the guy because, you know, we all do something or another for the first time in our lives, frequently throughout our lives, if we're growing as humans. And what seems very, very complicated often to someone who's never done it before seems kind of routine and mundane to someone who's done it a lot. And that'll be an example of what this is. And, and, and it's one of those things also when you hear the answer, you're like, oh, well, that was easy. And it, it, it's complicated, but it's easy, if that makes sense. We'll get to all of that and more in just a moment. Before we do, I wanted to just chat with you real quick about um, the government shutdown and, and, and the crisis that isn't. Um, what we keep hearing from the TV, even from both sides, right and, and left media, is, well, people are suffering. Americans are suffering. They're suffering. Please pay my husband. Oh, my God. Okay, listen. This is all bullshit. This is all bullshit. These people are all going to get back paid, and they know it. They're all getting a free vacation right now. That's number one. Now, look, contractors is a different thing. Contractors are paid for services rendered. If you're a government contractor, and right now you're not getting paid, you need to be contracting to somebody else until you can go back to your government contract job. And that's just the reality. And that's the reality for millions of Americans every year that lose employment. You're in a lot better situation than many of them ever have been, okay? So don't cry to me. I'm talking about the actual 800,000 government employees right now that we're hearing the sob stories for. <laughs> They're suffering. They can't pay their bills. <sighs> oh, shut up. Let me explain something to you that the TV will never tell you because it will eliminate their ability to do this stupid shit. Any federal worker qualifies to join any federal credit union. Most federal workers do use a federal credit union as their bank. If they don't, they're pretty dim because there's a lot of advantages to it. But I'll get to those people in just a second. Any existing federal employee that was a member of a federal credit union at the time that the shutdown occurred can walk into their credit union and get a 0% loan that will then be covered by their back pay when the shutdown ends. I... I'm not making it up, okay? Any federal worker who is not yet a member of a credit union, and I don't know if all the credit unions, but plenty of them are, is offering to do the loan for them if they'll come in and set up with them now with a 2% discount off a of standard personal loan rate, which right now would probably run somewhere between 4% and 6%, probably lower through a credit union as a federal employee. Now, oh my God, they'll have to pay 4%. It's stupid if you're worried about that. If they shut down, for, if the shutdown lasts two months, and they take 100% of their pay over those two months, and, and it's a 4% loan, do you know what the effective interest is they'll pay? 0.66%. That's what it'll cost them. 
And that's the ones that are not already members. The other ones get a 0% loan. It's all bullshit. It's all a lie. People are not suffering. People are not going to not be able to pay their bills. People are not going to get thrown out. It's all an effing lie. Please stop. It is, see, this is irrelevant of the fence, isn't it? See, that's the whole point. Well, yeah, Trump wants his fence. I think we need a fence. I don't care. I don't care. That's not what we're talking about. This has nothing to do with a fence. This is to do with a lie you're being told. That some poor person who only makes 140 grand a year being paid with stolen money in the first place to anchor their ass to a desk who's not doing it right now is going to go starve and die and their kids are going to go without food. It is a lie. Please stop believing lies. Please do a, a just a cursory amount of research before you believe anything these MFers tell you. Please. All right. Let's go ahead and get into better things. Because you guys... You know what? You didn't bother me on the calls at all about the government shutdown. I didn't get a single call from anybody. I want to know about the government. No. So thank you for that. Let's talk about better things. In fact, I don't think we have a political call at all today. Well, with that, we'll go ahead and take our first call. Hi, Jack. It's Garrett from the Hudson Valley in New York. I just wanted to share some feedback with you. Like a lot of people, finding an appropriate gift for some people can be difficult uh, during the holiday season. Some people can be especially difficult. For example, my dad, who's in his late 70s, lives on a fixed income, income and lives alone, is a, a challenge to buy for. So this year, I bought him a subscription from ButcherBox. He recently received his first box, and he really loves it. The nice thing about this is it also provides my sister and my brothers and I a sense of satisfaction and security, knowing that at least dad is eating well a couple times a week. Thanks a lot. Always love the show. See you soon. Uh, just, just first, another quick shout-out for ButcherBox as a sponsor. Um, I have had some people come to me with some problems with ButcherBox, and I've, I've immediately got in touch with Daniel, who's my contact over there, and every time it's been fixed. I mean, people. I've had people with a little hiccup, and he's like, okay, your next box is on us. So just, number one, stand-up company. Uh, number two, though, what I liked about this call is the entire concept here. This is something that I think a lot of us deal with with older parents, especially, especially it seems when you end up with a a single older parent uh, due to it maybe a divorce early on, or one of them passes away and there's a, they're living by themselves on that fixed income. And God, I'll tell you, I've been tired. Oh man, there's been parts of my life where I want to gouge my eardrums out other than hear one more person complain about living on a fixed income as if every other person on planet Earth doesn't have some sort of cap on their income. Um, but as we age, and, and God, I hope that I'm immune to this, and I probably won't be, we tend to get more nervous and overreact to things, and we become easy to frighten, uh, especially economically. And I think maybe this is getting to be a little less true than it used to be because – You know, when I was, you know, to let's say 20 years ago, most of the old people remember part of the Depression, right? And then you had old people that remembered the Depression. Well, that's a whole different thing. And they, they, I know my grandparents lived their whole life with the belief that it was coming back. And uh, so I, I can understand it. I'm not putting them down. But you often get in this place where they won't take care of themselves as well they should be nutritionally. They won't buy good quality meat and things like that. My 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 father-in-law, uh, before he he lost some of his faculty, we had to put him into memory care. Um, he was like this, you know. He loved meat, and we would, you know, I'd go out and buy stuff and take it over to him or cook it for him or whatever, you know. And he was living on like Marie Callender's TV dinners and stuff like that, uh, which is mostly carbohydrate based. And 
you know, older people especially have issues with deficiencies in B12 for two reasons. One is directly dietary, and the other one is indirectly dietary, where they actually lose the ability to absorb B12 even if they're eating it. And you can get into something called pernicious anemia with that. And uh, so, like, that's a double-edged sword. But, you know, if you at least have people eating well, they, they, they do better in all walks of life. And I never really thought of this. And, it, again, I want to say, like, they're a great sponsor, but it doesn't have to be Butcher Box. There's a lot of services now like this, including some that, you know, food isn't pre-portioned, pre-cooked, and stuff like that. I mean, it might really be something to look at for if you have elderly people in your life, whether they're parents or uncles or whatever, that you're worried about and getting together with the family and, and everybody do a little bit. It doesn't cost that much. And it's an easy thing to do. And, you know, they, they can say all they want about not wanting to spend money on it. What I've found with people like that is when it shows up, they eat it. So I think that's a, that's a good thing. I'm glad you did that for him. And I'm glad you shared that with us. I think that that's great. And with services like ButcherBox, whether it's them or anybody else that you use for something like this, the, the nice thing is being able to change things out. So if you go over to his house and you find like he's not using this one particular thing and he's not really interested in it, take it home and change the change the next one so that it is the things that he'll use or, or she'll use in, in, in whatever case. But I think working toward any solution that puts good quality food into older people's uh, households is something that's noble, and we should all be working to do it if we have older people in our lives. And it is a place I've seen in almost every instance where you end up with either an older couple or a single older person in their retirement years, especially if they're further away from their kids so the kids aren't going to the house all the time and stuff like this, their dietary intake quality declines. Um, and, and some of it is because it costs money, but some of it is because they won't spend the money. And I, I've seen both. I want to be clear. I've seen both. Uh, and it, but it doesn't matter why, does it? It matters that. And um, it kind of ties in with the song of the day today that we'll have at the end of the day. Taking care of people is how we solve problems. So thanks for that call. Let's take another one. This one on tools. Hi, Jack. Casey from Connecticut here. Uh, first off, I just wanted to thank you and the audience for your ideas and suggestions about getting the family on board with homegrown meat. Uh, definitely some food for thought there, things that I'm going to try. Um, and when I do, I will let you know how it works out with my family. Um, on to my question. Uh, my question is about growing your collection of tools. So I don't have a lot of tools. I have some wrench sets and um hammers, screwdrivers, just the basic home, you know, uh, things that you have in your home as a homeowner. Um, but I obviously want to grow that collection out. So I'm going to start looking on Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. Uh, but I was wondering if you had any suggestions on what brands to look for and how to tell the value of the tools to make sure that you're not uh, being ripped off, paying too much and whatnot, how to tell if they're in good condition or not. Um, yeah, uh, you just had any suggestions about that. Um, hand tools and power tools, because I do want to get some power tools going. Uh, thank you. So I, I think one of the things you should do no matter what you're buying, let's take it away from tools for right now, in assessing a price. What does that item cost new? And if you're going to save less than 25% by buying used, in most instances, depends on what it is, but in most instances, you're probably just better off buying a new item. 
because now you've got a warranty, now you've got a new product, now you know what was done and what wasn't done with that thing, whatever it is. Now let's move into tools. There's two very different types of tools you're asking about. You're asking about hand tools, and you're asking about power tools. And in the world of power tools, we're going to bifurcate again. Do we plug it in, or do we plug a battery in? Okay, those are, those are also different. So let's start out with hand tools. Hand tools are the place that I think you can save some real money, and you can come out ahead. But what it's important to do is, like, brand is important to a degree. Um, I think Snap-on has done a fantastic job of marketing their shiny wrenches. I don't think they're worth what they sell them for, though. And you couldn't get, you couldn't get, I wouldn't care if I won a Powerball 100 million tomorrow, I would not outfit my, my shop with Snap-on tools. It's, it's, it's just bragging bullshit is all it is. Um, you know, a good quality brand. Freaking, um, what's the stuff that, uh, well, Lowe's has uh, Craftsman now. I think they bought that brand out of Sears in the bankruptcy issues. Um, but uh, Cobalt, Cobalt makes good hand tools. There's a lot of good varieties of hand tools. The, 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 you know, the, the ones that are just knockoff Chinese of any kind, you know, those are so cheap, you're better off buying those new if you're going to stoop to that level. So any good quality brand of hand tool, all you got to really do is take a look at it and see, is there anything wrong with it? There's not a lot that can go wrong with a hammer. I mean, either it's got cracks in the handle or whatever, and you can replace the handle, or it's you know maybe rusted to shit to the point where by the time you get the rust off it, it's going to be deformed, or it's not. Uh, screwdrivers. You look at the, you know, look at when you do a screw, look at buying a set of screwdrivers. Look at the, uh, the 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 bit end of it. And are they are they you know stripped or anything like that? Are they damaged? Do, is there any evidence that maybe they were used for things they're not for, like used as a center punch and beaten on, weaken the handle and stuff like that? But it's pretty easy. Like I'm just going to say, you know, you can look at that, and if you can buy the same stuff, uh, and it would cost you 25% more. Hand tools are a pretty good bet. And don't be afraid to check pawn shops are probably the best place to go look for hand tools. And just understand this, no pawn shop is going to require you to pay the price that's on that tool. They will negotiate on that. They'll always negotiate. They put a high price. You know, it's the reverse of what you see on Pawn Stars, right? So always be willing to go in there and say, you know, and I would pay half of what you're asking and see what they say. And then also use stacking. So stacking, if I go into a pawn shop and they have a good assortment of hand tools and I see some stuff that I think would make sense to me, I'm not going to go up there with one item. I'm going to go up there with three or four items and say, I'll do all four of these, but I can only give you about half of what you're asking. This seems way overpriced. And he's not going to come down to there, but they're, they're going to come down somewhere, and then you make a decision of whether that works or not. Um, now let's move on to power tools. When it comes to rechargeable tools, DeWalt, Rigid, Milwaukee, Port cable, etc. Um, I, I think you should look at buying any used power tool. Is that best? You're get it's a rechargeable. It comes with a battery and a charger, or multiple batteries and a charger. At best, what you're actually getting is the bare tool and a charger, and you should just assume the batteries aren't going to make it that long. That's why I, I don't even really recommend buying used rechargeable power tools. Unless you've already settled on a brand and battery format, and then you see a really good deal that gets you another piece of equipment you don't have or you'd like to have two of, because you can't have too many drills, for instance, or drivers, in my opinion, um, 
and another charger, and it, it would, it's going to cost you significantly less than going out and buying the bare tool and another charger, and now you have another charger that all your batteries fit in, and any new battery you buy is already in that format, then I'll think about it. But I, I, in general, I see rechargeable tools on the secondary market as not being a very good value, unless you know its history. You know, if you know Tom is getting divorced, and Tom is pissed, and Tom's having to move, and Tom just went out and bought a whole brand new set of Rigid or DeWalt or Milwaukee shit last year for $400 or $600 or whatever, and he's only had it less than a year, and you know Tom, and he's dumping that at like $250 bucks just to get some money because he's screwed. Okay. Otherwise, stay away. Plug-in power tools. Now we're back to, let's take a look at the tool. Let's see how it was abused. What would the tool cost me new? And I want to save 30% or more. Or more, more than able to 50% on plug-in power tools versus not buying a new tool. There is a lot of utility you can get out of a good set of rechargeable tools. And there's a company that I want to like for the value. And it's Porter Cable. Porter Cable, I've got, I've got some of their, um, their, uh, cordless, um, nail guns and I love them and they're powerful and they work and they're about half the price I'm talking new price half the price of the DeWalt equivalents they don't have a framing cordless nail gun yet which DeWalt has and is tempting me all the time with but you know they you know, 16 gauge Brad nail gun finishing nails not really Brad's finishing nails and it's done a lot for me because even if I need to put you know a heavier screw or heavier nail in there working by yourself being able to Level that board, batam, and it holds it for you? I've done projects three times as fast as I have those guns. and I've used Porter Cable drills, and for what they are, I'm impressed. It's the What's kept me from bringing a set of Porter Cable to you guys um, and saying, look, it's just too good a value to pass up is that their, their circular saws are weak ass. They're just like they're, you can get these sets that have you know four, six, eight tools with them. And, you know they have a, a drill, uh, an impact driver, uh, a sawzall, etc. And they'll have a, a circular saw, which I think is an incredibly important tool. And every review you read, even the higher quality ones, that it just bogs down and sucks, and that's not acceptable. Um, and the reason I won't say we'll get all this and go, I think that when you kind of make your decision on a rechargeable tool set, if you can, standardization like I always teach. So, you know, if you're using 22-volt DeWalt, kind of locks you into the tool set. And that is my favorite of all power tools is DeWalt. I kind of wish DeWalt had never changed from the old 18-volt NICATs. And they have an adapter and all, yeah, I know, but I mean... Um, I have had less luck with longevity of their battery packs uh, with the 22-volt uh, line, so it has me look in other places. The power tool company, and they're expensive. They're as expensive as DeWalt. Uh, but the power tool company that probably makes the most sense to invest in, if you don't own anything yet and you want to standardize on a, a rechargeable line of power tools, is rigid. And it's not that they're that much better than everybody else, They offer a warranty. I don't know if it's a year or two years, but they offer a warranty not only on the tools, but on the batteries. And not many companies offer a warranty on the batteries. DeWalt certainly does not. And you'll quickly find that the long-term expense 
in a, a line of tools like that is the batteries. So, that said, the cheap way to get good quality tools that will do a good job for you for power tools is plug-in tools. And I'm fine buying those on the used market. And I would say, like, the things you want, a jigsaw, a circular saw, a sawzall, and a good quality drill. Now, on the drill, I don't give a shit what you buy. Get a cordless drill and get a cordless impact driver. Um, an angle grinder is a great idea. If you already have a rechargeable set, get the one that goes with that, uh, with that battery format. But a cheap plug-in angle grinder does so much. You can get one at, uh, like... I think I have one I recommend on, on T-Spaz for like 20 bucks or 15 bucks or something like that on Amazon. It's Black and Decker. It works. And you'll find that most of your plug-in tools have plenty of ass behind them. Even the cheaper ones. Because you got AC. You got lots of power there. As you go into cheaper tools with rechargeables, that's where you get kind of a weak sauce performance. So hopefully that helps you kind of ferret things out overall. I think it's a noble goal to build out your tool chest And I think one of the best things that you can do for yourself with this is ask yourself, what do I want to do next? And what tools do I not have that I need to do that? And what tools do I not have that I don't need to do it, but they would make things far better? The one thing, I, one power tool set I don't have, and it's not really a hand-level tool, uh, that I don't have that I really need to go ahead and break down and buy is a table saw. Uh, table, I, you know, I got a chop saw, but a table saw coupled with that and all the other stuff I have, it would make my life a lot easier. Even some projects I've done recently, I just haven't done it. It's an, and it's another big thing in my shop. Uh, but you know, if you have the kind of tools I just laid out, you can get most things that you need done. And uh, always be on the lookout for sales. I would rather wait for a sale and buy new tools on sale than buy somebody's junk. Because usually when somebody sells their tools... It's only two things. They beat the shit out of them, and they're dumping them before they die, especially rechargeables. Or they came on hard times. The second one's good, but you don't know which one it is. You're playing a little bit of some dice there. Let's take another one. This one on saving for your kids. Hey, Jack. Jesse from Vermont calling. Uh, my question is about savings for my two young daughters. Every year they receive money from family from 5 to $10, sometimes up to $100. Uh, it was Wondering, besides um, putting into um, piggy banks or low-interest savings accounts, where you would suggest to invest the cash? Um, I have uh, looked into uh, 529s, but I'm not sure about uh, if college would be in their future. So I was looking for other ideas. Uh, also looked into um, custodian savings accounts. And it seems like the maturities are around 18 to 21 years of age. I'm just not sure about my children's maturity at that point, if uh, they should be entrusted with um, with a lot of money at that age. My girls are uh, one in three years of age, and uh, the money, I think, should go towards their retirement or anything that pops up in the future. Thank you, Jack. Um, let's just be honest about the whole investing uh, concept here. Um, you don't need to worry about investing money at this point, just saving it. it this is a lot like when John Puglia and Anno and I talk about, you know, investing and saving for your retirement. And we say, like, you, you know, until you save up about $30,000, the most valuable thing you have up till about that point is your labor. 
or your ability to earn income, whether it's through labor, entrepreneurship, side, whatever it is, like you, you spending time even trying to figure out how to invest a thousand dollars, the time you've spent farting around with that and risking some of that money, you could have made ten times what you could make on your best expectations on, on a return. Because let's be honest, let's say you have a thousand dollars and you do a ten percent uh, investment for the year. Ten percent is a good, solid annual return. Nothing wrong with it. You just made a hundred bucks. Now, I'd rather have the hundred bucks and not have the hundred bucks. But if I had to hem and haw and dick around and spend several hours, you know, let's say ten hours to make that hundred bucks, I just made ten dollars an hour. I can make more money than that delivering pizzas. And from the numbers you're giving me, it sounds like it's going to be a while before you even have a thousand dollars. So why don't we take the whole concept right now of investing and just let's put it on the shelf until there's enough money to worry about investing. And let's start with savings. Now I'm going to say some things you may not agree with here, so you choose to do what you want to with the information, including ignore parts of it. I believe that when children are given money from relatives, grandpas, grandmas, uncles and aunts and stuff like that, that they should get some of that money to do some things that are fun with because that's why mama and grandma and daddy and whatever gave them money. Okay? So I don't think they should spend it all. Because I think you're, tra you're training your children in your actions. And what you do and what you permit them to do and what you guide them to do. And you're going to do that for, you know, 18, 20 years or more, you're going to do that. So you need to be mindful in how you do this. So I'm a big believer that when a kid gets, especially with a birthday, maybe tons of people throw money, maybe they get 100 bucks, that they should get some money, that they can do anything they want to with. They should also get some money that's earmarked for, like you were saying, piggy bank, savings, and a piggy bank. This is your saving money. And I think what you tell them is, Any money you put into your savings that you manage for yourself on your, you know, your piggy bank on your, your thing, you can spend it. But with that, anytime you're going to spend any money out of the piggy bank, you have to come to me and tell me what you're going to spend it on. We have to talk about it. And you have to wait a week. And after a week, if you still want to spend it on that thing, you can do that. Okay? That teaches mindfulness in spending. Then we need a little piece somewhere in there for giving. And we don't have to give it the second that it shows up. It can have a, another little the giving jar. We're going to have the giving jar. Maybe dad manages the giving jar for the kids. And your kids are pretty young. You may not have to do Right now, you might just throw it all in a, in, in a way for them, right, for, to give them the base to start off of. But as they get old enough to intellectually understand what I'm talking about, then you have the giving jar. And maybe the giving jar just builds up some money because then it actually feels a little different when you give it. It's more of a sacrifice, And it feels better about the results that come from it. So one day, your kid comes home and says, I just learned about problem XYZ. And you say, you know what? The giving jar is getting pretty full. Let's see if we can find somebody that's helping people with problem XYZ. And then teach them how to actually find people worthy of their contribution. And then empty the giving jar and start filling it back up. And then the bulk, especially at this age, because they don't need a lot of money for these other things, should go to savings. And I think probably the best way to do that is a simple savings account um, 
and you pick your bank or how you want to do it, whether it's a, a local credit union, uh, whether it's one of the online banks that pay a little bit more interest or something, and, and, and just ignore things like 529. The entire point of 529 is really a way to save money for an education and defer any tax consequences on the gains. Okay? I'll say that again. To defer any tax consequences on the gains. If you have a couple thousand dollars earning 2% interest and the child actually even qualifies with it being a ch the child's asset to pay tax on it, pay the tax. It's, it's a couple dollars. You're not, all you've done is restrict what you can do with the money for almost nothing. Now, over time, as this money builds up, there's a lot of things that we can do. Assuming that the parents have not maximized their, their Roth IRA, you could actually open a Roth IRA in your name and maintain the money for the child. Remember, we can always take the money out of the Roth IRA with no taxes and penalties as long as we only take out the contributed portions of them. That's another way. As they get older, you can actually set up their own Roth IRA. You can look at doing direct stock investments and things like that, but that's, a, that's something we're going to make down the road. You're teaching, honest to God, this kind of money is really important for their future, and it's, I've always used the term life establishment funds. So this custodial idea and everything, put it in a bank account. You don't need a custodial account. Put the bank account in their name with you in control of it, where they can't do anything without you. And as far as what age that changes, you don't even have to have an age that changes that. You decide when that happens. Even if you put it in a separate savings account, and it's like, you know, account A and account B are for to two daughters, and it's in your name, and even if you have to pay income tax on that interest at your tax rate, and therefore you have complete control over that money, period, anyway, it's still such an insignificant amount of income tax, it is not worth tying the money up for. One way or another, just put it the hell away. The bulk that's in savings, the reason I don't like the idea of it being in cash, when we're teaching young people to manage a budget, cash makes a lot of sense by the time they get to where they're paying their car note and their mortgage or their rent and going grocery shopping because they see it's not space credits on a card. They see it. In your home, as extra money, Cash ends up being one of the... Cash is hard to spend if it's all you have. If you also have it, it gets very easy to spend. So taking that and somehow locking it away. If you insist on doing it in cash, go out and spend 12 bucks a year, get a safe deposit box, and put their cash in two different envelopes, Kimmy and Tammy or whatever their names are, inside that deposit box to use it for other things. Yes, I know that if you are marked a terrorist... Uh, under the Patriot Act, that they could open your box and seize your assets. It's probably not going to happen, right? Or get a freaking firebox and keep it in the house and don't let them near it. And you don't ever go near it. It is their money, and always remember that. And if you ever need help, because you might come on a place where you really like, maybe I'll just borrow a little bit and pay it back, write right on there, this is my child's future. And when you look at that, you will not take money out of that envelope. But one way or another, sequester the savings portion. But I believe in dividing it into piss-off money. You can do whatever you want to with it right now because, damn it, that's, that's what Grandpa intended when he gave you the money. Short-term savings, charity, and long-term investment. And what does that look like? 
a well-run adult household. See? And the thing is, their portions could be a lot bigger toward things like giving and long-term savings than yours can. And the bigger you make their portions now, even when reality sets in and they got to pay a mortgage bill and they can't save 25, 35, 45% anymore, they'll push 10 to 12 because you train them to. And you're training future generational wealth this way. Investment means so little in this situation. Because if they have an extra $3,000 at the end of it, it will not alter their life anywhere near as much as well-disciplined financial education. They can make up an extra three grand like that, okay, with a well-disciplined financial education. Likewise, that extra three grand can be pissed away without that education. Instead of worrying about what age, let's train them so that the outcome is inevitable. If you train your children to be financially responsible, you will end up with financially responsible young adults. That's what training means. Training means to set up a system where the outcome is inevitable. That's, what, you know, that, that's training. That's what training really means. That's why we can train things that, that don't even have a consciousness. I could train a tree. I could train a vine. Because there are techniques to make that vine grow a certain way, or make that tree into a bonsai tree. And your children, if you lay this path for them, because they will see the result, they will not depart from it. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Matt from New Hampshire Man and the American Edge with a comment, mainly around something I've heard you say a lot about Facebook and the building the page, and this is for people trying to start a side hustle or a business. And uh, just something that I've, I've seen the same, like the amount of time I've put into Facebook, if I could have gone back in time and made one change, it would have been to put that time into Google My Business and uh, improving that page. And I think a key difference, and I look, for your, look forward to your thoughts on this, is that uh, when you're advertising with Facebook, it's kind of like a, a nuisance thrown into a feed of people there to socialize, whereas with Google – People go to Google for information. So for, like, my case, they'll go and search knife sharpening near me, and uh, with with a well-populated Google business page, that populates for them, and it gets me access to customers who are looking for what I'm doing uh, rather than just throwing it in. You know, Facebook tries to target it, but uh, I, the bottom line is I've had much better results with uh, with Google My Business than with Facebook. And that's uh, something I don't hear a lot of talk about. So anyway, thanks, man. See you around. I, I actually think the answer here is is a fairly big. It depends. Um, the the Google My Business is is a great thing, and, and and probably just about any small business should set one up. Though I think depending on the type of business you are, it may have a, a very limited to no effect, or maybe a home run in the number one source of your revenue uh, for another type of business. Where this works the best is what you said. You, you're getting customers who are trying to figure out where to get their knife sharpened, and they don't want to mail it. They want someone local to do the job for them. Uh, it works really good for restaurants. It works really good for like uh, service businesses, uh, uh, storefront businesses, and stuff like that. I don't know about like putting the effort in because there's not a lot of work 
into doing one of these? I mean, you keep your hours updated and stuff like that. If somebody does a review, you comment back to them uh, and, and have conversations that way. But I, you know, unless it's it's something that really takes off for you, I don't see it taking much time, which is a good thing. And, and I see it as being very solid. Facebook. I do not think the problem with advertising on Facebooks is that ads are disruptive. Um, if your ad is disruptive, you have a shitty ad. Now, I'm going to tell you flat out, a lot of people on Facebook have a shitty ad. The biggest problem I have with advertising on Facebook is that they're charging me to reach my own people. Um, when I, If I have a post that I want to advertise through the TSP page versus through the TSP group, they, they charge me a bunch of money. And, and you know, 90% of the people that see my ad are people that subscribe to my page and wanted to follow me in the first place. That that's that's a big problem there. I think when you look at something like Facebook, though, it is really tailored toward online businesses. That's what's going to work best. You see a T-shirt, it looks really cool. I think that's a neat T-shirt. I never saw one like that before. It's 20 bucks. I'll buy it because I have 20 extra bucks. I don't think it would work really good for somebody with a local knife sharpening business. I, I really don't, because. Okay, this guy's in you know Vermont or Connecticut or whatever. I'm in Texas. I'm mailing my knives. He can mail them back to me. And if I wanted to do that, I probably didn't discover that I could do that on Facebook while I was browsing a political argument with a friend, right? So, and then there's the other part of Google, the the flat out search engine optimization side, which I think works equally well for both. Um, my Website, even to this day, gets a tremendous amount of new first-time visitors from SEO. In some ways, way more than when I used to spend a lot of time on it. Because, well, there's over 2,500 episodes. That's 2,500 posts, plus all my reviews, plus all my articles and everything else. So there's tons of what you call long-tail content out there. But SEO works incredibly well for local storefront businesses. Back when we had the duck egg business, the only reason I never set up a Google my, my business page for the duck eggs for Nine Mile Farm is I couldn't handle the customers I had. I didn't want anymore. And, uh, but, but what we did was local optimized search engine uh, performance. So that it, to this day, you still find us, and it's kind of a pain in the ass because people can't read the pages. We don't do this anymore. Uh, but, you know, Fort Worth duck eggs, Dallas duck eggs, et cetera. And I hit all the big cities around here and stuff, too, at one time. And I've since taken those pages down. Um, but that way, anybody looking for a – so that was this SEO type thing. Um, and, and I think that you have to balance all of these things equally. And you have to look at marketing a business today when it comes to the online tools that are available is you have a quiver like for a bow and arrow. And, you know, Google My Business page is one of those arrows. And Facebook is one of those arrows. And search engine optimization is one of those arrows. And email marketing is one of those arrows. And then, unlike a quiver where I pull that arrow out and the arrow's gone, once I shoot that arrow, if it's a paid advertisement, I have to buy a new one, a new one shows up. If it's a free mode, another one just shows up, and I'm going to rely on it again. Twitter, Instagram, all these things are like that. They're all arrows in that quiver. And what we do is we we kind of play around with those arrows, and we find the ones that do the most for us in our particular business, and then we rely on them as our primary hunting tools. 
And, and you'll find that you know there might even be some arrows in those quivers that we'll talk about here in a little bit with a different question, like it might be craft shows. might be an arrow in the quiver. It's a marketing technique or a farmer's market. If you're an ag business, marketing technique, it's an arrow in the quiver. It is a, a marketing and sales channel, right? That, that's how we have to think about this. And we do that, we get a lot more clear vision of what we're trying to accomplish with, with our marketing. And remember what marketing is. Marketing is telling your story. Selling is a transfer of belief. Those are two absolute definitions, which means you don't really need to know anything more about either one to understand the entire concept. We market by telling the story of who and what we are and what we're all about. Viral marketing is when that action causes other people to tell our story for us. And selling is anywhere in that marketing process as it gets handed over to a transaction where the customer believes the story and believes in the product enough to exchange value for it. And it doesn't matter how you do that. You figure out what works for your business, and then you pound the hell out of that. With that, let's take another one. This one on uh, kind of a totally different thing. Hi, Jeff. This is the Tactical Redneck. Let's have a quick comment on the fact that, well, there's no guarantees in life. I just got the official word last week that after spending the entirety of my adult life in the military that I'm going to be involuntarily separated for a higher tenure. Basically means that there's nothing negative in my record or anything like that, but I didn't get promoted as fast as they thought I should. And that's not like any kind of a forced retirement or nothing like that. That's just, you're done, have a nice life, bye-bye. So I just bring it up to say that, yeah, there are no guarantees in life, so plan accordingly. Thanks for the show, Jack. Well, first of all, let me say that I'm quite disappointed to hear that, man, and I'm, I'm sorry for you. And uh, on the other hand, I'm thinking you're probably going to be looking forward to not spending most of your time in Cuba. So there is that. And there's a lot of things that I know you personally are interested in pursuing uh, back here. So now you have to look forward to opportunity. And I don't know how you've managed your finances, but I hope well enough that you hit the, the thing on firm ground. This is also another reason a lot of people have been outraged by the military changing its retirement structure. And uh, this is why I'm actually for it. Because under the new structure, Uh, there'd be a significant amount of money in your retirement plan. It might not be as good as the golden days of uh, the old retirement structure if you did your 20, but when you don't, that's the big difference. And a lot of people uh, in our military, not even ending up in this situation, but at six, eight years, just decide, I don't want to do this anymore. And so when they leave, they, they end up with nothing because generally soldiers and whatnot are not good, especially in those first years at having like a, an independent retirement account and things like that, like a 401, or not a like an IRA or what have you. Um, they're just not going to save money. They're really good at spending money. Uh, the other side of it is that, you know, there's a lot of people out there that I think end up at 12, 14 years um, that can go the 20 or more. And they really don't want to be there anymore. But when they leave, they get nothing, and they know just another six years, I've got this retirement, and they'll hang on for it. Where I think if they, so that's why I actually don't think that change is all bad. Um, I don't know that it's all good either, but I don't think it's all bad. Uh, but this is, you know, 
This is so true of anybody. And I think the problem is that it's, it's typically government and state workers that tend to become really lapse on thinking that something like this can happen. Uh, in the military, it happens. I, I don't remember what uh, he said it was called now, but um, when I was in the Army, it was called QMP, uh, Quality Management Program. It was exactly what, what, what Tactical said, that if you didn't reach a certain rank by a certain time, um, well, they didn't think your performance was sufficient uh, to warrant retaining you. And, and that as, we, as we advance in things like the military... When you're a private and you're you know got a year of experience, they basically have as much space for people like that as they come up with. And as you advance, you take over positions of more and more authority. And as you do that, there's less and less of those positions that need to be filled. Like you, even though it's a government job, you don't get away from that reality. We only need so many people at this level. And if I've got someone coming in that's ready to take that position. And they've been in for 10 years, and I got a guy up here that's been there for 14 years, and not only is he not ready to go to the next level, he doesn't look like he's going to be ready to go there anytime soon. From a quality management standpoint, this is the military's case, it makes sense for me to remove that old-timer, save myself the cost of his retirement. That's just an economic decision. It's not, it is a heartless one, but it's, it's the way it gets done. Bring this young guy that's a little bit more aggressive into this position, And I'm now farming my next generation of whatever that next level is. And, and that's, that's how this gets done. And it's, it's one of those places where people think like you have a guaranteed retirement if you go in the military and you don't. The military is actually of government organizations. The one that probably, they don't call it firing, but technically they fire more people than probably any other government program that's out there. Because there's a lot of other, and I'll tell you who else does this is law enforcement. Now this is usually not, Not at the federal level. They pretty much fit people all the way through unless something terrible happens and you know they rob a store or something. Um, but in, in, in you know state and local law enforcement, um, I have a family member, really good guy, uh, that's a lieutenant now. And he's a lieutenant because they basically said, you're either taking the promotion or you're not going to be here anymore. So it wasn't even he couldn't advance. He had turned down multiple promotions to keep doing the part of the job he really loved. And they said, you know what, at the number of years you've got now and, and what have you, and he could actually took a retirement at that point, but it would, you know, he, he wanted more and he didn't want to stop working. So they kind of pushed him into a promotion. That happens in the military too. Um, but the overriding lesson here from tactical is you, you, you just need to understand there, there are no guarantees in life. Um, you could have that happen. You could go to the doctor tomorrow and be told you have terminal cancer or you could get hit by a truck. And we need to plan accordingly. And we're going to have a song that brings that, uh, a song, a, 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 a call that brings that back into perspective here uh, in just a moment, but not quite yet. We have one now on uh, Biltong. Real quick question for you, Jack. Um, Biltong at Deerheart, yes or no? I'm going to give you a quick answer to a quick question. I appreciate the brevity there and directness. Okay, so there is no safety reason not to make heart into biltong. None. It is completely acceptable. Uh, the heart is not a liver. A liver is a true organ when we think from the concept of an organ. While we classify hearts as an organ, they are really a muscle. 
They're a muscle that is controlled by the involuntary nervous system. But they are a muscle. The fiber is muscle. If you look at a piece of liver, it doesn't look like meat. Okay? It looks like liver, right? It doesn't look like meat. It doesn't look like muscle meat, because it ain't. Kidney doesn't look like muscle meat, because it ain't. You look at heart, it is basically like steak. So you think, well, why wouldn't you make biltong out of it? There's a couple reasons. Uh, first is it's relatively thin once we cut it up and trim it to where we'd be able to make a biltong product out of it, and it really ain't thick enough for making good classic biltong. Number two, it is the muscle that does the most work of any muscle in the life of any organism that has one. Boom, 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 Constant. Nonstop. Every day from the day that animal develops that heart to the point where it can take its first beat while it's still inside of its mother until its life ends. Boom, 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 boom. So heart muscle is incredibly dense, fine-grained muscle. And it just doesn't make a good Biltong product. There's only two ways to cook heart and have it be good. Really quick and fast and leave it a little bit uncooked in the, in the center. And it will be a little chewy but really good. And that's my favorite way to do it. Either grilled or fried or really long and slow like a stew. So you go, you'll, you'll go from being really edible to like bubble gum until you cook it and cook it and cook it. Like any piece of meat, if you cook it long enough, it gets fall apart soft. So I've done like lamb heart stew really good, but you stew it for a, way longer. You have to stew, let's see, typical lamb stew cuts. It takes a long time for that muscle to break down. If you make something like a biltong or jerky, it's just going to be tough as shoe leather. So that's why I would say no. Uh, but from a safety standpoint, there's, there's nothing dangerous about it. Let's take another one. Good morning, Jack. Jason from PA here. Often you've talked about, you know, entrepreneurship, um, being your brand, that you know, Really, you are, you know, your brand. And, you know, your podcast is a great example. Um, but then I think of, you know, things that are different in that type of scenario, particularly um, what do you do, what have you done to kind of ensure for your family? Um, I just think back to, you know, Scout with Appleseed, you know, tragedies happen unexpectedly, um, you know, you got a knee injury, you know, but what if something more serious happened? You know, um, Dorsey works to support your show, but, I mean, obviously she wouldn't be taking over the podcast, you know. So when you kind of go in a venture that's an entrepreneurship venture, but you want to make sure your family is taken care of, I, I mean, I know there's life insurance policies, but I'm just curious, like, what survival steps have you taken for that type of scenario so that anyone else venturing doesn't, hey, start a successful brand and then maybe not have made the steps and left their family, you know, unsupported in a tragedy? So it's a multifaceted question, and it, it really has a great deal um, to do with the business itself. Like, my business has strengths and weaknesses in this, and so would any business. But if you had a business that was more of a typical storefront, multi-employee business, then it would be very wise that you had groomed somebody they could run the business without you there. You want to do that anyway to free yourself up to work on rather than in your business with that type of business, to go out and make strategic relationships, do speaking engagements, philanthropy, whatever. And in that situation, uh, simply by uh, willing the business to your heirs, uh, the business can keep running without you. 
And, and that's awesome. Or if you're injured or sick or hurt or something like that, the business can run without you. My business can't do that, but it has some other strengths. And, and, and that I don't believe if you guys heard Jack Spierko died in a helicopter crash chasing wild hogs tomorrow, that every single person would just cancel their MSB. That I think there'd be a, a good, significant residual stream of income because let's face it, um, the, the benefits would still be there. Uh, we, we do have a plan in place so that the, the site stays up and all that and all the contents there. And, 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 and my business honestly could run another 10 years even if I didn't do new content. Uh, it would not make the money it makes now, but it would make enough money to provide enough income that I feel that my family would be okay. And at least we'll be able to figure out what they wanted to do. Uh, plus, if I die, let's just say there's lots of insurance. Okay, and I think that's important, and and that's a conversation you have with a good insurance agent, uh, and probably involve your, your your CPA in that a little bit as well, and figure out what your family actually needs. So, life insurance is something that everybody should have. Um, again, I'm a big fan of term life insurance. Uh, I got my term when I was really young, so I have essentially, most likely, somebody will collect my life insurance because I have term to 90. Now I might live longer than 90, but there's an equally good chance I won't. Uh, so it, it's kind of like getting whole life for the price of term is the kind of the way I looked at it. And it was dirt cheap, and that's why we did it. Um, but so, you know, if I'm dead, either she's selling the house or the house is paid for it. It's her choice, you know, and, and there's some residual income from the business. And uh, there are people that know enough about the business to help with any transition. Also, my business, you could easily hire someone to at least manage what's left of it. Uh, and, we, and we honestly probably should talk more about that. My wife and I should probably talk more about that. Um, disability is a different animal. The strength of my business and what I do is I could be in a wheelchair, and if I can still type and talk, I can do what I do until the day that I die. Um, as long as my mental faculties are there and I have limited physical ability. So if I got in a car wreck, uh, the lady does our pool. She works for the, the, uh, the jail system uh, in Tarrant County. And uh, she had a wreck on a motorcycle, and she was doing the pool stuff part-time. So when she gets to her retirement, she's got a second business. And uh, she had a motorcycle wreck and eventually had to go ahead and have her leg amputated by choice. She had tried to save it for almost a year, and it was just too much pain and not worth it to her anymore, and she went and got a prosthetic leg. And uh, that was very detrimental to her. She couldn't work because uh, she couldn't do her job, and she was too incapacitated for about six months to even do the part-time thing with pools. It took her about six months to kind of get any income coming back in at all, except the small amount of disability that the, the, the jail job paid, which, you know, it was it, it's better than nothing, but it didn't cover every cost in her life, and she got in a deep hole with it. Um, in that situation, as soon as I was back to mental state, because she was back to mental state in 30 days, but she wasn't physically capable of moving around well, um, I could do the job again. So you could obviously see that a person who was who, who was maybe kind of a self-employed handyman type in that same situation then would be incapacitated physically. So I think we have to make those types of things a, a part of our decision-making process for short- and long-term disability insurance. And frankly, I have a pretty big hole there. Uh, and it's something I need to look at, you know. And frankly, it'd be easy to do if I wasn't paying so much for freaking medical insurance, which is another thing entrepreneurs have to look at is the cost of medical insurance. This is one of the reasons that a, a, a married couple that has a spouse with a job where they can include the spouse in their benefits and the, and the spouse then being an entrepreneur works so well. 
It, it really, really does. Um, but this is all stuff that can be addressed. And again, I don't care what you do or where you work or how you are, you should have life insurance. One of my really good friends that passed away quite a few years ago now um, had always told his wife, don't worry, you'll be fine if I die. You'll be well taken care of. And they had just put a pool in. And uh, I think it was like $30,000 they spent to put this pool in. And they didn't spend $30,000. They borrowed $30,000 to put the pool in. And uh, it turned out his, you know, don't worry, you'll be okay. Life insurance was his employer paid for life insurance for him uh, and had insured him for $35,000. So she basically got enough to bury him and pay off the pool. And that is not the way to leave people behind. So I, I think probably the most important insurance is life. And then you really do have to look at short and long-term disability because not only can you end up in a situation where you can't provide for, but you can become a drain against. So now if you're injured in some way that not only can you not work, you know, but at least you're at home and you can pretty much look after yourself or whatever, you know, maybe you need a little help, whatever, but you end up where you need true significant amounts of care in order to keep you at a better level of care. The people that are used to rely on you may have to sacrifice even more. And, and really you need to think about that. So this is a complex one. Can't really do it all in a segment. Maybe we need to talk about entrepreneurs building survival plans for their business as a whole show at some point. Um, because it is, it is definitely a concern. The key though is, I think, just like our, our call from Tactical Redneck today, that I think people tend to not realize it's pretty much the same for everybody. You know, I mean, maybe there's an insurance product or whatever that gives you some disability or whatever that you have uh, when you work, but most people you end up with SSI disability. Well, you still have that. It just takes a long time to get on it. And you still have that. Just because you're self-employed doesn't mean you don't have that available to you. You may not have unemployment compensation, but if you become actually disabled, and it sucks, and it's not enough to live on well anyway. Um, and, and I think a lot of times people say, well, if you, if you work for yourself, you have these worries. I think you need to think about the fact that in some ways the entrepreneur has less of these worries. If there is any component of the enterprise that can continue without them, that continues. If you stop working, you stop getting paid. So I think it's something everybody actually needs to be concerned about. Uh, next up, uh, final question of the day. Interesting one. And I'm going to say it a bit rambling, and I'm going to play all of the rambling to make a point of how sometimes we tend to make the simple complex. Hi, Jack. This is Josh. I have a business question for you. How do we find the average cost per unit? My wife has started a herbal business, <clears throat> kind of inspired on, um, on some of your suggestions, but uh, she loves herbs, and she's always wanted to help people out. So she started an herbal business, and her main product is herbal tea blends. Um, they're high-end. Our goal was to grow everything ourselves. That quickly became impossible, and now we um, we source everything organically, fair trade when possible. So so we have a super premium product, um, and and we we charge a premium price for it. At least at least I think we do. She generally sells at the farmers market, and last weekend she sold almost seven hundred dollars worth of tea, and also soaps and other stuff, but but mainly tea. I know how to put the labor in. As far as, um, you know, how long it takes us to, to blend and bag. I know how to put the 
the cost then for labeling and, and packaging. What I'm having an issue with is setting up her an hourly wage to sell at the farmer's market. So that's going to be five hours every Saturday and, and putting that in across the board and then adding that amount to the product. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how to do this. And I'm not sure if my product is, pro- is priced right. I've listened to your podcast before where you talk about market. So far, the market seems to support it. Nobody blinks an eye. We have small bags for $8 and large bags for $15. But I think that might be too low, and I'm wanting to raise the price to $10 and $20. But I, I'm not sure I'm not sure how to do that in Excel. And, and then also, we have a website, and I don't hate money, so I'm going to go ahead and, and tell you what the website is so you can tell your audience. It's angiesgardens.com. And by the way, if you're going to do that, I have a I have a discount for them. It's going to be TFT10, and that'll get them 10% off. But I'd like to know how do I how do I spread that labor due to a farmer's market across the product? Because she's wanting to spread out to different farmers markets, but there's only one of her. I've been helping her, and I haven't been getting paid. And I told her that if we need to get somebody else to go to a different farmers market, we're going to have to pay them. And obviously, that's going to have to go into the price of the tea. So, I mean, do we basically say, okay, this is a salary, and this is how much we sell on average, and then just average that across each product? But but then the, the big bags are more expensive than the smaller bags, so should we only add less labor to the small bags and more labor to the large bags? I know this is probably not as complicated as, as I'm making it, and I may have actually said my answer right there, but I'm I'm still not sure – how to do that. So if you would would care to comment on this, I would appreciate it. And I didn't even keep my word to you, and I did pull some of that call out and did take out a lot of spaces, and in spite of everything, took out some ums and, and, and hums and repeats. So, yeah, it was even longer and more than it sounded. I'm not picking on the caller. We all get into these kind of feedback loops. And, yeah, kind of like at the end where he said, I think I'm making this probably harder than it is. Maybe I just said the answer right there uh, to a degree. Yeah, you did. But I'm going to do a little pop culture thing here right now. I don't do a lot of these. I'm going to go ahead and do one. And I'm going to tell you how simply this really can be answered. Then I'll come back and give you uh, an actual explanation to it. Gotta keep them separated. Now, it's certainly not what the offspring were talking about when they wrote that song or played that song if somebody else wrote it. Um, but it's this is your problem. You what you're talking about is not part of what we call the cogs. So you're throwing some words around there that really were the word you used. I don't remember what it was at the beginning, but it made me think of ARPU or average revenue per user. So it seemed like more you're talking about like the sales side. And then he went into this, and I'm like, okay, I understand the problem. Uh, but what you're talking about is COGS or cost of goods sold. And there's different things that contribute to the cost of goods sold. And some of them are very specific in the way that you work them out. If you have a bag of a particular tea blend, um, you make up 100 bags, uh, you know the cost of all the herbs, and then you divide that by 100, and then you know how much each bag costs you to manufacture from a standpoint of materials. You 
seem to have no problem coming up with a wage value of someone that, that does the, the blending and packaging, and you've kind of put that in there, and that's great. Most people don't, and kudos to you for doing it. And, and, and a kudos to you guys for two other things. One, getting out there getting three. Getting out there getting it freaking done. Two, selling a significant volume. Who freaking raw? Um, and, and three, being smart enough to snap to the whole concept. You do not have to grow everything you're going to sell. So many people don't understand that you are really better off doing one or the other, uh, especially when you talk about value-added product. Uh, if you're if you're growing chickens and direct selling chickens, that's one thing. If you're growing chickens and trying to make chicken pot pies, that's a totally different one. It really is. Uh, so so good on all of that. Now the the place that you're getting into this, and it is still a cost of goods sold number, but we have a raw cogs. That raw cogs is everything it takes to get that product, let's say, on a shelf and ready to deliver to a customer. Then we really need to look at salaries that are involved with marketing and sales is somewhat of a variable cost, but it really goes under what we would call on a larger scale enterprise, a burden labor rate. So it, it, you, you, right now you think it's complicated, but it's really pretty simple because you're talking about every single form of, and understand that's what a farmer's market really is. It's a marketing expense. It's a marketing expense. That, that's what it is. So you have this one particular type of marketing that's actually going to be the same. Like If you find another one and you put somebody in there, it's going to be about the same cost of marketing. Now, it may not be the same realized amount of sales. And this is where you're getting confused. You're confusing how much you sell with your cost of marketing. And, and, and having that go back and change the cost of production of the product, which doesn't happen. Okay? If, so, so you wouldn't ask this if you paid uh, $1,200 to Google for advertising. You'd either get enough sales to offset it, or you wouldn't and say that was a bad expenditure. You wouldn't get confused there. But it would be very different than farmer's markets. So... We keep them separated, and we're not saying it really isn't part of the COGS, but we don't try to force it in there. We let it as a variable speak to us to whether or not it's worth doing or not. Now, how do we put in, if you just want to force it back into the COGS under a burden labor rate, you can, and this is how you would do it. I don't give a flying shit. And I don't mean no disrespect to you or your wife, but in this equation, the value of your wife is not relevant. It's not relevant. The question is, if you hired that mythical person, how much does a job like this pay? How much does a job like this pay? And it's probably like seven or eight dollar an hour job for someone who's a part-time person who just wants something extra to do. It's not hard. Yeah, there's some product training and all, but I mean, if you can't get a person to figure out how to how to explain your different blends in in a, in a couple of weeks, you need a new person, and that will always be your biggest problem in a business. Once you start involving people, is people, they'll be your biggest asset and your biggest problem at the same time. That's why I don't like it. <laughs> um, so it's whatever you would you know start looking to hire somebody. You know, so we're considering hiring somebody to do this job. Talk to some people that are, you know, just talk to some friends and family. You know, anybody that might be interested in a part-time job every Saturday for five hours. And explain it to them and say, you know, we're not sure we're doing this yet, but we were thinking of paying eight bucks an hour. 
And then what does that person actually cost you? You have to start running a payroll now. Or you can run them as a contractor, sort of, maybe for a while. But then you put that number in as your wife's number. But you're really not doing it at a cost of goods sold. What you're going to do is you're going to have the cost of the goods to be produced. And then you're going to have the cost of the marketing. And then you're going to determine your profit. Because the marketing is not a fixed cost of the production of the product. You got to keep them separated because the next marketing venue might have a far larger or far smaller cost. And if we've combined the marketing cost of this and then we go forward with that number, that number's no good to us anymore because if we start doing some sort of online advertising and we start doing a lot of online sales, how much it costs your wife or anybody to sit at a farmer's market next Saturday has nothing to do with that product. That product has its own marketing and sales channel, and that's going to backfill against the profit. The bigger we get, believe it or not, if we're good with Excel, the easier this gets, because the, the more numbers we have, the greater the accuracy of an average, and we end up with a burden labor rate per unit. And that means that when we, you know, if we got so big that we have an office and uh, we have 30 employees and a shipping department and everything, and we have a, a, a person, you know, you are paying yourself a salary now of $100,000 a year, and yet you still have minimum wage people in the back that all they do is like, they're, instead of licking windows, they're licking stamps, right? And that's all you need them to do, so they only warrant minimum wage unless they move up. And you're that big, you think, now this is all complicated. No, we take everybody's salary, we take the cost of the electricity, blah, 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 the whole thing. And then we aggregate average it out. This is what an hour of this company running a day costs us. This is how many hours a day the company runs based on however we decided to do that math. This is the, the direct cost of, of, of production outside of labor. And we add the two together and we have a unit cost. And now we can go into any marketing channel and we use that number and it works. So it, it's a little bit complicated, but it's really not. What you need to actually figure out is just a hypothetical. First of all, you need to know, and it sounds like you do, how much money did you make? At, what, was the, what was your profit on that $700 minus your wife's time not doing the work to make the product, to package the product, but minus your wife's time to whatever your employee would do? Go to the, the, the back room of the house, load up the bins, put them in a vehicle, drive there, do the job for the day, return the unsold inventory, do any paperwork. Is that five, is that really five hours? Or is it five hours at the table? And it's really, if you had to pay somebody, would it be seven? I don't know. You figure out how much time that is. Then hypothetically say we pay $10 an hour. 50 bucks. Take that 50 bucks and subtract it from your profit. That is the simple calculation at this stage of a business. We don't have to force it back into a burden labor rate at this point. And if we made $300, and by turning up another outlet, we could pay this person $50 and make another $200 or $250, then it makes sense to do. Oh, wait a minute, though. Can you make that much more product? Will you need an employee to start helping you make product? And you just have to factor that all the way through. But if you're already charging, if you're already charging in the in the base math, now of course you still have income. 
So let's say right now you say that your your wife's time is valued at twenty bucks an hour when she's mixing, packaging, etc., and that's what you think it would cost you to get somebody else to do it. She's still earning that income. You're not paying it to her, but it's in that profit, right? So you have to think about like all of those things when you're doing this. But if you're trying to say like the cost of marketing that we're going to assign to this single bag is 15 cents, you can't do that because every time you add a different distribution, marketing, and sales channel, you'll either have to take back that out and create a new one, right? Which just doesn't make any sense because what if that other one fluctuates? Which of all of a sudden your volume goes up or down at that one? Where if we, we we just say this is what it costs to produce, and this is the cost of this marketing, and what's left is profit, then we know because that way when we turn up another location, we can make a very quick determination because what we're going to say is the cost of the product is X, okay. The, the cost of the fee and the employee is why. Well, we already know exactly what our profit is outside of that. right? We already So then we can say, we need gross sales of X to break even. And everything above that is profit. And how much, of, how much is it worth? How much is this extra headache? You know, how much value do we place in that? If we make 75 bucks a week, is this worth an employee and them calling in sick? Probably not. But if it can make us a couple hundred bucks and start to train somebody that might be more valuable to the business long term, depending on how big we want it to be, then we start to figure things out from there and go from there. So that's how you work that out. you got to keep them separated. With that, we've come to the end of another show. I want to remind you guys one of the ways you can help support us is to become a member of the MSB or the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you help support us by spending $50, which is not a lot of money, 50 bucks a year. Uh, and uh, you become a, a member. And then you get all kinds of discounts. And those discounts help you out uh, with stuff you probably would buy anyway. And you can do that just by going to survivalpodcast.com and click on members. The easy, super easy way to help us out is by doing your online shopping through tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com, tspaz.com. You see all the items I've ever reviewed on Amazon there. And... Uh, you can, uh, they're all, you know, in categories alphabetical and stuff like that. You can see all my past reviews. Uh, but I also bring out a new item every day. You can check out the gold box deals or deals of the day and stuff like that on Amazon. As long as you go through Amazon, go through T-Spads, he'll support us no matter what you buy. Today's product is one I'm bringing back around. It's a, a book, uh, by James Green, who's an herbalist, uh, called The Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook, a home manual. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If I could only have one book on herbal medicine, it would be this book. I love this book so much that one day when I went upstairs and kind of went through my books to figure out which ones need to go to the half-price bookstore, what ones need to get donated to uh, Goodwill or whatever, I realized I had two copies of it and I'd bought in both of them. Uh, that's just the, the level of value that I see in this book. And here's why. Uh, the, the hard copy is like 20 bucks. Uh, the Kindle version is like $15. What if I told you that you could take a course on, I would say, semi-advanced home herbal medicine for $20, complete with projects, tell you exactly how to go through them to make different concoctions, uh, teaches you about herbal actions, teaches you about a core group of herbs that will do most of the things that you would do for yourself in a home situation, almost every single way. Uh, from infusions to salves to, to uh, 
decoctions, you name it. If you can do something with an herb, this course will teach you how to do it, and it'll give you a project. Like, we're going to make a decoction out of these herbs right now for this reason. And by the time you got done with that, you'd be a pretty damn good home herbalist. You could, you know, serve as that herbalist in every household that Western Botanicals, our sponsor, says they want to create. You could be that person in your home for 15 to 20 bucks. That sounds ridiculous. That's this book. I, I mentioned this week that one of the reasons I do know a lot about herbs and I have such a fondness for them is I started going through some training um, and um, I was on a path to become a master herbalist. And I just decided that I didn't care about the certification that much and I didn't see myself using it professionally. So it wasn't worth continuing the expense and the time to do. But that's where I came across this book. It was, it was one of the course books uh, in, 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 the, in the, the training that I was taking. And I, I, one of the other reasons I kind of quit doing it is I realized, like, this is everything I need for, for what I want in my life. You know, I, I didn't want to be going around as some herbal guru. I just wanted to be able to uh, practically use herbs in my home and know that if I found out something was good for something, uh, and the best way to do that was through a salve, that I could know how to use use a technique to make a salve for that particular herb and kind of figure out how much to use and how to apply it and what have you. And this book gave me all of that and more. It is the best book I know of on herbal medicine, and I highly recommend it. Go on the shelf of every home in America. Again, the Herbal Medicine Maker's Handbook by James Green. The review is at TSPAS today under the most current reviews. We're at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Just scroll down and you will see it. Uh, right under today's episode. Uh, that brings us to our song of the day today. Uh, Garth Brooks week again. And this is, you know, I said Garth kind of retired. So he really did come out of retirement. I'd say semi came out of retirement because he, he sure ain't putting on the, the tour hours that he did before retirement. You know, he retired basically to raise his kids. You got to respect that. And, you know, I think he said at the time that he was thinking about doing it kind of before he pulled the trigger. But I have more money than I could spend, my kids could spend, their kids could spend, and their kids could spend. That's enough for any man. So I think the reason he's back performing is he just enjoys it. And you, you, if you look at some of the old footage of Garth Brooks when he's on stage, you can see him feeding on the crowd's energy, man. He, but, but, you know, he, and there is, I understand that as being a public speaker, um, there is a certain, almost a high when you're in the front of a room and people are paying attention to you and you know you're impacting them in some way. And it's, it's, you know, one of those natural and very good highs. Um, he's also a very, I think, a very ethical person. I, I get the, Feeling these problems, for, especially for country music, maybe a little more liberal uh, in, in, in some ways than, than, than maybe I am, or uh, certainly a lot of people in country music are. Uh, of course, I am incredibly socially liberal and, and, and fairly fiscally conservative. In other words, I think you can do whatever you want to do, but I don't think I should have to pay for it. Um, but this song is called People Loving People, and it was, it was part of the album he released when he came out of retirement to a degree, anyway. Um, and it, it is in some ways a lot like we shall be free in its viewpoint of a common man saying like here's the solutions to our problems and basically what he's saying is you, you can't you can't fix what's wrong in the world with anything other than love and i think that's one of those messages that's so true but yet seems so fanciful that people are like stupid hippie right i mean really i think that's a lot of times how people feel about that because you look at real world problems and think like you know love isn't going to fix this, but in the end, it's love that does fix it. 
I think that the problem is that when people hear a message like this, they see it like, well, if everybody just loved enough people, we wouldn't have any problems. And you think, yeah, you know what, that's kind of true, but that ain't going to happen. So we have to deal with the real damn world. Instead of saying, well, what solutions can I provide to somebody just because they are a person that I'm concerned about? You know, we talked yesterday um, with, uh, with, with uh, Michael Sedoni from Walk to Talk America. And we talked about how he's put together an organization where, you know, gun manufacturers and, and, and companies in the firearms business are taking a portion of what they're earning and donating it to mental health programs to help with things like um, suicide prevention and, and mental health for people that need it, dealing people with post-traumatic stress disorder, etc. And, you know, part of this is because sometimes people get really in a very dark place and they go hurt somebody else. But in the end, the majority of these instances when they involve guns uh, is suicide. And so that, you know, if we in the firearms world keep saying that it's a mental health problem, not a gun problem, but then we don't step up and do something about it, we're pointing at the problem, but we're no more part of the solution than anybody else. But why actually be part of that solution, you know? Are we doing it just so that people don't take our gun rights? I mean, is that why you would support an organization like Walk the Talk? Is this for the same concept as why you would support the NRA? who lobbies to protect at least some of your rights as, as an armed citizen? Or, or are you doing it because, well, there's somebody out there hurting, and this contribution, whether it be through assistance or whether it be financial or whatever, that person could get help. Well, what causes, what causes a person to feel that way? What causes one person to value the life of another person they don't even know enough to sacrifice something of themselves? so that that person can be better off. And all of those solutions are driven by love of our fellow man. And not necessarily hippie, you know, circle, guitar, kumbaya love, but understanding that the life of another person has value. That they're worthy of our concern, that they're worthy of our consideration. And even on some level of self-serving, the better off others are, the better off we are, too. In fact, it is the exact opposite of politics. You know, that song, Keep Them Separated? You know? You know what that's about? That's about us. And keeping us separated. Because it is only through separation of people by class, by sex, by race, and every other way you can think of to, to divide people. Religion, doesn't matter. It is only through separation that you can create class warfare and fear of other groups of people. And there's only one antidote to that tactic. And that is to see other human beings as having value. As being worthy of concern. Of being worth something. With that it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Doctor, you ain't got a pill. 
whatever's making this world build. You can't get forgiveness at the store. In peace, it's a politician's war. You won't find no resolution in the bottom of a bottle. In the stars are every stop. The only answer to the problem is people. Loving people. That's the enemy of everything is evil. Ain't no quick fix at the end of a deed up. It's just people loving people. Whoa, whoa. Talk is cheap, but lies are free. We fear what we don't understand, and we've been scared since time began. All the colors and the cultures circle round us on a span. It's a complicated riddle. The solution is so simple: it's people loving people. That's the enemy of everything. It's evil. Just people loving people.